So we were thinking about our Father who art in heaven, how will be thy name? We know, all of us know, how important our own name is. How do you feel when somebody scandalizes your name? How do you feel? Tells a false story about you, completely untrue. Say somebody accused you of adultery, and spreads that rumor around town. Would you be addressed somewhere? Or supposing somebody spread a story like that about your teenage daughter? We are very concerned about our name, our family name. So important for us. Uh, but I found that Christians don't seem to be so concerned about the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is dishonored, and I said, by Christians everywhere. And I feel that I've seen this in my own country. I've often said, as Christians who dishonor the name of Christ in India, in America, everywhere, Canada, And many people who reject. Christ have not rejected the Jesus Christ of the Bible, they have rejected the Christ they have seen in Christians. And when I witness to non-Christians in India, one of the first things I have to tell them is the Christ you have seen in many Christians in India whom you have rejected, I have also rejected, just by the way. That's not the way Christ. And I reject that Christ which is manifested by most Christians I have met. So we realize what a tremendous responsibility falls upon us when we take a name. Many nations say, you know, for example, if you are the ambassador for the Canadian government appointed you as its ambassador to some country. You're representing the nation, just you and, you know, the media will just pick up on anything you do or where you go or what you say. Everything is picked up. I want to tell you that maybe a lot of things in your life that are secret, secret sins, that other people cannot pick up and are not so well known for the media to follow you everywhere and find out what all you are doing, like they follow well-known politicians and well-known film stars. But there's someone else who's following you around, who's closer than the media. And that's the devil and his demons. And they see everything you do. They see how you behave with your wife at home, how you speak to your husband. They see how you relate to your neighbors, they see how you handle your finances, they see how righteous or unrighteous you are in your business, the demons I mean. They know everything and the media publishes it in newspapers and on television, the demons, uh, 
through the devil report to God. The like you saw in the book of Job. God, that one claims to pay the name of Jesus. See how he's behaving. What did God say? The Bible says Jesus Christ is our advocate when we sin. But it says here, it's a very interesting word, I don't even notice In 1 John 2, 1, if we sin, and true believers sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What does the rest of the verse say? You know what his name is? Tell me. Please tell me. Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's about the only place in the New Testament where he's called Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because most lawyers are crooks. But Jesus Christ is not a crooked lawyer who's going to defend you even if you've done something wrong. A good lawyer will let you off the hook, get you off the hook by telling lies about you, but not Jesus. When the devil accuses you about something, Jesus Christ the righteous cannot pretend that you never did it. So he's a righteous advocate. Don't forget that. And we bring so much dishonor to God's name. Like I was telling you, I told his brother, I said the fact that your moral failure scandalizes you among other Christians, that is nothing. That's garbage. The opinions of men fit for the trash can. Whether they praise you or criticize you, throw it in the trash can. Think of what the demons and the devil are saying to God about you. And let that disturb you more than the fact that, oh, I lost my reputation among believers. Do you think that comes right? Do you think when you stand before the Lord and the final day he's going to get all these other believers to ask for their opinion about you? That's the thing that I, I told you, the first book of the Bible, Job, the first chapter, is about what goes on there in the heavens. And that's where the name of God is dishonored today, in the heavenly. In the Old Testament, it was Israel's name, God's name was dishonored because they were an earthly people. It was dishonored in Egypt, it was dishonored in Assyria, Babylon, etc. But today, we are a heavenly people. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A Christian, whether you know it or not, you're supposed to be heavenly. And it's there that the name of God is being dishonored. You must always think about that. The Bible says that we are crucified with Christ, buried with Him. We all know that in theory, we know the verses. And we were, Ephesians 2 says we were raised up together with Him. And Ephesians 2 6 says we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. And everything in Ephesians is about in the heavenlies. We're seated with Him in the heavenlies, and our promises are in the heavenlies, and our warfare is in the heavenlies. And it is in the heavenlies that the name of God is being dishonored. That's the thing that should concern us more. But also on the earth. So, let me show you two verses which have been a great challenge to me. If I see God's standard, and I want to tell you God's standard is not what you see in other Christians, 
It's not even what you hear in most preachers. I've been a believer for 52 years and I've heard all the great preachers that in my lifetime, English-speaking preachers, I've read most of the great Christian authors whose books are available in English. I know almost much about almost all of them. But it's very rare that you find people explaining what it means for God's name to be glorified. And, uh, you know, something which I want to share with you right now, which I've almost never heard anybody speak about it. I want to put two verses together. One is, you know, I told you that Jesus, uh, let's start with John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. John 1, 18. But Jesus, the only God and Son of God, explained to the Father. So, and that's the basis on which I want to share what's on my heart right now. No one has seen God at any time. And that's why we have so many religions. Like, if you go to a country where nobody's ever seen an elephant or seen a picture of an elephant, and you ask 20 people to draw a picture of an elephant, nobody will draw a long trunk because animals don't have that. So, when we have so many religions, so many people have never seen God trying to define God. We have a thousand religions or more. The only one who could explain God was the one who came from heaven. And no religion claims someone came from heaven to explain God. Jesus explained the Father. Then he said at the end of his life, when John 14, when Philip said to him in verse 8, Lord, just show us the Father once. That's enough. I mean, he had heard Jesus speaking so many wonderful things about the Father. He said, Lord, just show us the Father once. That'll do for us. It's enough for us. Imagine going to God and saying, just do one thing for me. I don't ask for anything else. Philip asked for one thing. Just show me the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, you've known me for three and a half years, and you're praying asking me to show you the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip had seen him for three and a half years. And Philip, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. You see me put my arm around the lepers? That's the Father. You saw me washing everybody's feet just now? That's the Father. That's how God is. You saw me chasing the money changers out of the temple? That's the Father. You saw me speaking words of compassion to that woman caught in adultery? That's the Father. You saw me telling the religious Scholars, you generation of vipers, how will you escape the damnation of hell? That's the Father. That's the balanced picture of the Father. Have you seen me? Have you heard me? You've seen the Father. In the earthly life of Jesus, the way he lived, is behold the kindness and the severity of God, it says in Romans 11 22. And you see that in Jesus, grace and truth. There you see the Father. So Jesus came to demonstrate to this world, like we saw in John 1 he, he explained the Father by his behavior and conduct 
His attitude to money reveals what the father was like. His attitude to women reveals what the father was like. His attitude to Pharisees reveals what the father, his attitude to his stumbling, bumbling disciples reveals the father's attitude to Jesus, to Judas Iscariot, and to Peter reveals the father. His attitude to the Pharisees reveals the father. His whole life was revealing the father. Have you seen me? Have you heard me? Have you seen what the God is like? And one day when we meet our Heavenly Father and that day will come, we will discover, we will see He is exactly like Jesus Christ. The Father will discover God is a very, very, very humble person. The more like God we become, the more humble we become. And a person is not progressing in humility, going further and further down, you know that man doesn't know God at all. That's why I see most preachers I've met, they don't know God at all. Now, so that's one verse. He who has seen me has seen that seen the Father. Keep that in mind. I want you to link that with this verse. John 20, after the resurrection, he said. You know, the time when he anticipated the day of Pentecost, when they were going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, by breathing on them, John 20, verse 22. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That takes us back to Genesis 1, where the same Jesus, before he was known as Jesus, breathed on a pile of mud and there was a living soul there, Adam. Till then he was a pile of mud and Jesus breathed on him and he suddenly became, he got a human spirit and he became a living soul. And I say here, the same Jesus now, that was the old creation, now it's the new creation, also begins with a breathing. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He was anticipating the day when they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I say, the difference between a spirit filled Christian and a non spirit filled Christian is the difference between a living Adam and a pile of mud. Same shape. Think of Adam. Can you think for a moment of Adam before God breathed on him? You know how he looked? He looked exactly like you and me. Ten fingers, two eyes, two ears. Made from mud with a lot of water. The moment God breathed on him, he became a living human being. That's the difference. And you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And now, the question is why does, why did Jesus breathe on them to uh, fill them with the Holy Spirit? As I said, this is an anticipation. It was fully fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but this was a foretaste. The purpose, now listen to this, a lot of controversy concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. See, he was to speak in tongues and all kinds of things. I think it sums it all up here. Why have I been on you the Holy Spirit? Verse 21, previous verse. As the Father 
sent me, I send you. And in order to fulfill that ministry, here's the Holy Spirit. See the connection there? Verse 21 and 22. Okay. So, God wants to fill me with the Spirit so that I can be His representative on earth, just like Jesus was the Father's representative on earth. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And in order for you to fulfill that, here's the Holy Spirit. Many of you are praying for the Holy Spirit. Many of you imagine you're already filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope so. What for? Just to speak in tongues? Just to be able to preach about? No. As the Father sent me, so send I This is so gripped my heart. Changed my life. Okay, why did the Father send him? The Father sent Jesus, saying, Go to earth and live and speak and conduct yourself 24 hours a day in such a way that at the end of your life you'll be able to say, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That was his ministry. Now, as the Father sent me, so send I you. The Lord says, Here's the fullness of the Holy Spirit for you. Now go and live at home, place of work. When you travel, when you drive on the roads, everybody else has got road rage. Here's how you must behave. You must be able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. I want to ask you, have you ever in your life heard that before? I never heard it. I was converted when I was 19 and a half, 52 years ago. I wish somebody had laid a hold of me and said, Dad, you know you're called to show Jesus by your life. And I wish somebody had got a hold of me and told me how I could do that by being good of the Holy Spirit. If somebody had told me every time you lose your temper, you're manifesting the devil. Every time you lust after women, you're manifesting the devil. That's how the race of Adam is, but you're not supposed to be like that. God fills you with the Spirit so that you can say, if you've seen me, you'll see Jesus. And when you get married, you should be able to tell your wife, darling, if you want to see what Jesus is like, tell me. And you should be able to tell your husband, honey, if you want to see what Jesus is like, tell me. How many of you believe that is even your calling, even on uh, whether you're doing it? But you never do it unless you feel that's your calling. And you can look at your brothers in your church who watch you. Maybe you're a leader. And they see how you conduct yourself as a leader or an elder. You can say, you've seen, you've seen how Jesus was. The day you are gripped with that. Not, I mean, there's a nice thought you got today. And... Uh, you can be excited. Oh, that was a nice thought. And those who are preachers say, yeah, that's a good thought. I can share it with somebody else. You see a lot of people who listen to my messages only in order to preach that somewhere else. See, they haven't understood anything. They're only seeking to get honor for some new thought. That's not your calling, brothers. Your calling is not to get honor for what you preach and share, but to manifest Jesus so that God will be glorified. Everything. I remember when I started preaching initially how children are, you know. Children like to behave like grown ups. 
And in the early days, I wanted to preach like someone who's still like a better. Pretty quickly. I said, Lord, I don't want to preach like any of these people. I want to study how you preach. There's not much written about the way Jesus preached, but I can get a little picture, and the Holy Spirit can show me from Scripture how Jesus preached. And I said, Lord, I want to preach that. So, in everything, you should be able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen a little bit about Jesus' life. And as the years go by, as you watch me, you'll see more and more of what Jesus is like. I'm not completely like him yet. No, the buildings under construction. And you see the buildings under construction around us. They don't look so grand. The scaffolding and a lot of dirt and all that. But it's under construction. And one day you see a wonderful building there. But that didn't come overnight. It's little by little by little built up. And so, every year, the people who know us best should be able to see and say, I know a little more of what Jesus is like. Because I see my husband. I see my wife. I see my other brother. I see my brother. I see my sister. And I can see what Jesus is like. It's not the message. It's not the words. He who has seen me has seen Jesus. That is how we glorify His name. It's not just like distributing tracts and witnessing on the streets. I did all that. I remember a town that I lived in when I was in the naval base in India. In two years I covered every single street in that town, standing in every corner, preaching the gospel. I couldn't say I manifested Jesus by my life. We can be so zealous in evangelism and activity and just like Martha, doing this, that, and the other for the Lord. And the Lord just rebukes at the end of it and says, you're worried about so many things, I'm not interested in all that. I want you to sit and listen to me and what I'm trying to tell you. I want you to be like me. And do you think our ministry will be less effective? Far from it. I've discovered that once I got gripped with this truth that my main calling in life just like Jesus calling us to manifest the Father, is to manifest Jesus in everything I do. The way I handle money. I said, Lord, I want to handle money exactly like you handle it. And I want to increasingly become like that. I want to have the same attitude to money that Jesus had. I want to, have, I want to be able to look at every woman in the world the way Jesus exactly the way Jesus looked at every woman. A soul to be saved from sin. To look at every hypocrite the way Jesus looked at the Pharisees. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to get a reputation for kindness and gentleness and say to the Pharisees, oh you're a nice people. Jesus never said that. There's so much of honesty. You know, in Christendom, they tell preachers, you shouldn't say hard things to people. Don't uh, say things that will hurt them. Uh, be nice, you know, how to win friends and influence people, all that type of stuff. Jesus didn't do that. 
He represented the Father. He loved people too much to see them going to hell and to keep quiet about their real condition. He loved them too much. He don't love them so much. I see Jesus turning around to Simon Peter and saying, Get behind me, Satan! He loved them so much that he didn't want Satan to, he didn't want Peter to destroy himself by seeking his own. He told Peter, You're interested in the things of man. So the voice of the devils, Peter. Peter and said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall I go? These are the words of eternal life. What were the words of eternal life? Get behind me, Satan. He had the understanding to realize those were words of eternal life for him that saved him from destroying himself like Judas Iscariot. So it's a wonderful thing to study the life of Jesus and see, how, Lord, how shall I honor your name? Why have you filled me with the Holy Spirit? So that I can represent you accurately. You know, when Jesus came to earth, people had such a wrong idea of what God was like. Israel was full of Bible scholars, great theologians, who were giving a wrong picture of God to the people. And Jesus came and said it all right. Correct picture. And they got mad at him. Because when he explained what God was really like, that showed up these theologians and scholars as completely wrong. And that's why they killed him. Because they lost their reputation. In fact, a lot of sincere people were led astray by those if you had asked Simon Peter before he met Jesus, say a couple of years before he met Jesus, well, Peter, or you call it Simon, Simon, can you tell me the name of some really godly people whom you know? This is before he met Jesus. He would have told you the names of some Pharisees, some old, long bearded Pharisees. Synagogues is that man, boy. I tell you, Anne's boy, she seemed to look on his face so serious. Caiaphas, he was one of the godly men I met. And then Jesus gets up and calls them a bunch of vipers, snakes, ready to go to hell. Can you imagine the shock that people like Peter get? when they think of these people whom they consider to be the greatest men of God in their generation, Jesus exposes them all as hypocrites. And Simon Peter was willing to recognize that what Jesus said was right. And there were very few who saw it. Most people still thought that those great preachers of that day were the great people because they explained the scriptures so well and they said, but they didn't manifest Christ and they did not produce in their congregations people who were Christ-like. They produced a bunch of people who knew the scriptures. Not Christ-like people. And Jesus wasn't just trying to produce people who were just knew the Bible. So, now, now apply that, that was 2,000 years ago. Now, Apply that situation to today. As the Father sent me, so send I you. I want all of you, if you call yourself Christians, to take that word and apply to yourself. 
I take it to myself. As the Father sent me, so send I you. I go out into a Christian world where people have got a wrong understanding of God. They've got a wrong understanding of God, just like Israel had a wrong understanding of God 2,000 years ago because of the great theologians and scholars presenting a wrong picture of God. Okay, what is the picture of God that most Christians are getting today? I'm talking about people who claim to be born again Christians. They get the picture of God from the television evangelists as a God who's crazy after money. Because they're always asking for money. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Okay. Here are the offering bags coming around. And enough doesn't come around the first time and pass it on a second time. Don't you, I mean, does that disturb you? When Jesus saw people making money in the name of religion in the temple, he said, get out of here. If you want to make money, go to the marketplace and make as much as you like, but not here in my house. He got angry. Now I want to tell you in Jesus' name, if you can watch these television preachers and every preacher goes on begging for money and you don't get angry, you are not Christ-like. That's not the place to be gentle and nice. Jesus wasn't gentle and nice to these people who were dishonoring the name of God by making money. We think Christ-likeness is always be very nice, don't say anything hurting to people. Well, then you haven't seen the Christ of the Bible. You've got a wrong understanding of Christ because you don't read the scriptures. How did he react when he saw those people making money in the name of religion? How did Jesus react when he saw people making money in the marketplace? Okay, fine, you do that. That's your God, you're in the marketplace. But when he saw that happening in the house of God, that made him furious. He made a whip. And I believe this is Christ-likeness. And I tell you, most Christians are not Christ-like because they can sit and watch these television writers and be quite calm about it. I'm never calm about it. It makes my blood boil when I see these poor people being exploited. That's what I say, a wrong picture of God and most Christians will just sit back and try to be Christ-like. They're not being Christ-like, they're, they're being like the devil. The devil's the only one who's happy. And this time people say, I'm just taking one care Or think of preachers who fall into adultery. And the favorite example they quote is David. He still remains the same. Right! That proves you're an old covenant preacher. That proves you're building an old covenant church. Be honest about that also. David was not a new covenant preacher. Do you find Paul falling into adultery? Do you find Peter falling into adultery? You go back to the old covenant to find comfort for your sin. And multitudes of preachers are like that. They fall into homosexuality, adultery, and they go to Because they want to come back to the ministry to make more money. So we're living in such a time. A wrong understanding of God, and God is for you and me, saying, as the Father sent me, so send I you. I don't know how many people take that calling seriously. I don't expect everybody to do it, because even Jesus said he was here, here, here. The greatest preacher that ever walked on this earth walked for three and a half years, and all he would find among the thousands and thousands who heard him was 120 people on the day of Pentecost, 
who wanted to be married. You think that's a failure? It wasn't. He didn't have a mega church. But he accomplished a little of power. And I believe this is the word we need to hear in our time, my brothers and sisters. You need to hear what God is calling you to be. It doesn't matter if you're an ordinary young person. Your responsibility is not just the responsibility of preachers. Every Christian is supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to represent Christ so that the name of God, which is dishonored, will be honored once again. In a land like Israel, where there was a caricature of God, a wrong picture of God that was being portrayed by the preachers of his time, came Jesus and showed what God was like. And they were mad. They called him false teacher, heretic, Beelzebul, prince of devils. And Jesus said to us, if they call the head of the family Beelzebul, how much more they will call you? I want to ask you, my dear brothers and sisters, what are the names you have been called? My eyes. Has anybody called you devil? False teacher. They call Jesus all that. You know, that's the way you know you're part of God's family. Jesus said that in Matthew 10. If they call the head of the family beautiful, how much more they will call the members of his family. That's how I know I'm a member of his family. But that is not all of them. Jesus said, Rejoice when people speak ill of you because of me, because that's what how they spoke of true prophets. But today we have a Christendom that follows people who are acclaimed by men, but they're not manifesting Christ. I don't know whether that concerns you. See, when I see all this this money racketeering that goes on, and I tell you, I, I live in India, I've lived in India for 72 years all my life, and I see the amount of racketeering going on in the area of money in Christian work. Money that's given by sincere people, the way it's being used in orphanages and private schools and all types of things. And uh, I live there and I know what's going on. And I say, Lord, what dishonor upon your name? Does it concern you? The name of Jesus is being dishonored. Does it weigh you down? Supposing your, your daughter was being scandalized everywhere. Your daughter is such a pure girl you brought up and she's being scandalized as a prostitute living in a garden and you know the whole thing is false. Would you sit back and say, oh, that's okay. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. It would disturb you. And when you love Jesus, I'll tell you it will disturb you when you see his name being dishonored the way it is. All over the world. And your prayer will be dad in heaven. Your name be hallowed, that your name be respected. And let it begin with me, Lord. Don't let anything that I do, don't let a sentence that I speak to my wife at home, one sentence, make the devil dishonor the name of Jesus in the heavens because of me. Let it begin with me. Will you pray that prayer? Let it begin with me, Lord, and the way I live, 
the way I relate to my fellow believers in this day when people are seeking to go up and up and up and up and up on titles and positions and honor. How many people take the words of Jesus seriously? Don't be called rabbi, father. Don't look for titles. We have a Christendom where people seek for titles. Somebody wants to be reverend so-and-so, somebody wants to be right reverend so-and-so, somebody wants to be pastor so-and-so. Every title is meant to say to other believers, listen, I'm one step above you, fellas. Whereas Jesus went down to their feet. On the last day of his earthly life, he was not a director or a CEO, he was a slave washing disciples' feet. And if you're going in the same direction as Jesus, as you progress in the likeness of Jesus, you will become more and more a servant of your fellow believers. I remember I got a letter once from a college in the United States saying, Dear Mr. Zach Poulin, we'd like to give you a doctorate for the books you've written. And I love you, Dr. Zachman. I said, well, thank you. No, thank you. I said, the end of my life, be what Jesus told me I should be, a brother and a servant. Do you represent Jesus more accurately if you're somebody called you a doctor? I mean, if you're a medical doctor, that's okay, but a doctor because you're a theologian? How is it that people don't seem to have any light on all this? They wanted to make Jesus a king. He ran away. You read that in John chapter 6. He who has seen me has seen Jesus. That should be your goal. They should see you washing people's feet. Symbolically, that the attitude of a servant in everything, who made no demands on people, he never expected people to respect him. They called him beautiful. He said, you're forgiven. He said, I'm only the son of man. I, I see, when he said, I'm the son of man, the fact that he used about himself most frequently, I understand it to me. It's my interpretation. You don't have to accept it. An ordinary man. And that's what we read in Matthew 12, when they said, this man is casting out demons by people. What a thing to call the Son of God the Prince of Devils. Can you think of a greater insult than that? I mean, you, you and I may, may have been insulted by many people, but we're not Almighty God. We're just sinners. And even if people say bad things about us, a lot of it may be true because there's so much corruption in us. But to call him the Son of God a Prince of Devils? And what does he turn around and tell them in Matthew 12? Have you spoken against an ordinary man like me? I say, Lord Jesus, make me like you. Make me like you. That whatever people may say against me, let me always remember I'm following one who is Son of God to walk on earth as an ordinary man. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, except 
in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice unto his life. There's a little poem that I used to sing to myself, and I often sung to myself, right from 50 years ago. I wrote it at the back of my Bible. As to what it means to take up the cross. When Paul said, I'm dead to the world. You cannot represent Christ adequately unless you're really willing to die to the world and its opinion about you. And that's why that poem meant a lot to me. It said, dead to the world and its applause to all the customs, fashions, laws of those who hate the humbling cross so dead that no desire may rise to appear good or great or wise in any but my Savior's eyes. Can you say that? Then to the world and its applause to all the customs, fashions, laws, those who hate the humbling cross so dead that no desire may even rise, no desire even rises to appear good or great or wise in anyone's eyes of my Savior's eyes. If you have that attitude, I believe the Lord will help you through the power of His Holy Spirit in the days to come. We can't do anything about our past. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. I failed you miserably by the way I've lived by the way I have conducted myself at home, my place of work, by my financial means, by the way I behave in church, and my honor seeking, and my money seeking, and my pleasure seeking, my lust seeking, and those secret moments when I watch internet one hour people, maybe only five seconds. Dishonor to your name. Forgive me. But Lord, it's going to be different days to come. You think nobody watches you when you see watch internet one hour people? You think so. You lock the door and look around over there. Well, all the demons are there watching you all the time. Just waiting for you to click on that site so that they can report to the devil, to report to God. Haha, God, you see that? You thought nobody was watching. Think again. Do you believe that there is a supernatural world? Do you believe in angels who hang their head in shame when they see a person who calls himself a believer watching internet pornography even for five seconds? We have to take this matter seriously, brothers and sisters. The name of God is blasphemed because of us. Because we're not willing to share the death of Jesus on the cross. I choose to die and say, Lord, I want to follow that way. And finally, the Holy Spirit strengthens us, empowers us. Any one of you, there's no partiality in God. What He did for Jesus, He will do for you. That's a great thought that came to my heart many years ago that whatever God did for Jesus, He will do for me. And I'll prove that to you in conclusion. You know where I got it from? Romans chapter 2. Sometimes you get revelation of the most unlikely revelation from a verse of scripture that doesn't even seem to talk about that. Have you read this verse, Romans 2 verse 11? 
What do you get from this verse? We're supposed to meditate on the word of God, not just read it. Romans 2 verse 11 says, There is no partiality with God. Sometimes when I come to a verse like that, there's a red light. And I don't crash through the red light, I stop. I know, the red light means I want to stop and meditate on that verse. Not rush on to the next verse because I want to finish reading the chapter today. No, I don't want to finish the chapter reading the chapter today. That'll be going past the red light. I wait, I meditate, next morning, get up, and the red light's still there. That means I've got something more to learn from that verse. That's the way to read the Bible. Meditate. What I got from that as I meditate was this. God is a father. Many fathers are partial towards their children. Fathers and mothers are partial towards their children. It's true, unfortunately. They've got one favorite son or one favorite daughter, and they'll do more for that than they'll do for the others. God is not like that. No partiality. I've been a father, I've got four sons. Born again and following the Lord, and by the grace of God, married born again people and following the Lord today. And as a father, I try my best to be like God to my children. That means no partiality. All will be exactly the same for me. I will not do more for my oldest son, which I wouldn't do for the others. I will not do more for my youngest son, which I wouldn't do for the others. All are equal. And I say, let me apply that to God now. God, Jesus, was called the only begotten Son of God when He came to earth. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But do you know that after the resurrection, He's never called the only begotten Son? He's called the firstborn Son. Do you know that difference? What is the difference between only begotten Son and firstborn Son? Many years ago, when I had only one son, I could say, that's my only son. As other children came along, I'd say, he's my firstborn son. That's the difference. On the day of the resurrection, Jesus said these amazing words to Mary Magdalene, almost the first words that man heard after Jesus rose from the dead, was, Go and tell my brothers, Before he went to the cross, he told his disciples in John 15, I'm not following his servants anymore, I'm following my friends. That itself was a promotion, servants and friends. But after his resurrection, he said, not even friends, my brothers. Go and tell my brothers that I ascend to my father and your father. It's a combined word now. He never used it before. Sometimes he would say in the gospel, my father, sometimes he would say your father. But now it is different. My father and your father combined. We've never seen anywhere till the resurrection. My father and your father, my God and your God. That was the new creation. Those disciples have now become, at the possibility of becoming sons of God. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit came, the Spirit bore witness with them that they were the sons of God now. Not servants like Israel was, sons. And Jesus was the elder brother now, the firstborn son, no longer the only begotten son. Isn't that amazing? 
truth, it's in scripture. Five times I will show you all those verses. And Romans 8.29 says that God has predestined us. It's the only verse that speaks about predestination, by the way. Not to go to heaven or hell. Predestined that we might be conformed to the image of His Son so that His Son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I'm one of them. Okay, now we got it. Jesus is the eldest brother and we, men and women, are His younger brothers and sisters. Now, there is no partiality with God. Remember that. What God did for Jesus, He will do for you. Because there's no partiality with God. Boy, I remember when that truth gripped me more than 30 years ago. I said, Lord, this is amazing. What God did for Jesus, He'll do for me, provided I fulfill the same conditions. I got a little bit of life and say, well, God, what God did for Jesus, He'll do for me. No. God gives His grace to the humble. If Jesus was proud, He wouldn't have got grace. He was humble all the time. He got grace. If I am humble my all the time, I'll get grace too. And grace gave Jesus the power to overcome sin. He gave me the power to overcome sin. When sin and evil fill this world, God's power still remains the same. As He helped Jesus to overcome, He will help you to overcome. One last verse, Revelation 3.21. A little phrase here. Jesus says, If you overcome as I overcame, that's the phrase. To overcome as he overcame. He will sit with me on my throne. I want to sit with Jesus on his throne. Don't you? It's not for everybody. He who overcomes as I overcame. He doesn't say in this verse, I sat down on my father's throne because I was the son of God. Some of us say that. Oh, I'm the son of God, I will sit with Jesus on his throne. Hang on, where do you get that in scripture? Here's what Jesus said. I sat down with my father on, on his throne because I overcame. And you, if you overcome, you'll sit with me on my throne. Lord, that's what I want. Praise the Lord, that can be ours.